Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast on the Criterion Collection and cinema. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we check out Ingmar Bergman's Bag of Tricks with The Magician. Released in 1958 after his dual international hits of Wild Strawberries and The Seventh Seal, the famed Swedish filmmaker took an introspective look at the relationship between the artist and the audience with Anskutet, translated as The Magician for its North American release, but literally meaning The Face. Bergman regular Max von Sydow stars in the titular role as Albert Emanuel Volger, a professed master of magnetism that travels with his small troupe performing shows. Fleeing authorities on charges of fraud and blasphemy, Volger and his company arrive in a Swedish village where they are met by the incredulous local authorities. Dr. Vergeris, played by another Bergman regular, Gunnar Bjornstrand, wagers with the local council that the troop will be revealed as frauds. Over the course of a day, Volger and his compatriots, including his wife, Manda, somberly portrayed by Ingrid Thulin, must fend for their dignity in the face of a hostile populace. Tightly scripted and directed, The Magician was long ignored by critics and audiences, but has found new life in recent years and been hailed as an overlooked masterpiece. Bergman and his crew blend comedy and metaphysical deliberations with hints of horror during the film's dramatic climax, as they delve into a thematic exploration of art, science, sociology, and ultimately, existence itself. Released by the Criterion Collection as a standalone title in 2010, and later included in Ingmar Bergman's cinema box set, The Magician remains a fascinating work from one of cinema's most prolific artists. Join Matt and me as we pull back the curtain to see The Magician's tricks. Well, Matt, it's been a little while since we spoke about an Ingmar Bergman film. Yeah. And with selecting The Magician, he now is going to be the most represented director on this podcast. He has now four titles we've discussed. We discussed previously the Faith Trilogy, uh, and now we're continuing our discussion of his uh, lesser-known works, I guess. I mean, the Faith Trilogy certainly has film buffs that know it, but as a matter of popular culture, it's not anything like The Seventh Seal or Fanny and Alexander or some of those other films that might be more readily known by just your general audience. Uh, but I wanted to talk about this. It's a film that I saw for the first time maybe four or five years ago. And it struck me as a particularly interesting work from Bergman, one that I had not really ever heard anybody talk about. And uh, it might be kind of a nice place for us to jump into and resume our considerations of the work of Ingmar Bergman. So I'm going to kick it over to you. What are your initial thoughts on The Magician? Yeah, so this is my first time seeing this Um I do have the the giant Bergman box set. I know this is included in there, uh, but I hadn't really gotten to this title. And uh, I, you know, I thought it was quite good. I, I it's it's a strange film. You know, it's very interesting. It's probably um, one of the easiest paychecks that Max von Sydow ever got. But uh, <laughs> that's not to say he doesn't put in a good performance, but uh, he didn't have a whole, uh, whole lot of lines to memorize for obvious reasons. Uh, but that, that aside, you know, it, it's really an ambitious film. I mean, you kind of went over some of the, the tonal shifts this film goes through, right? I mean, there are comedy elements, um, really kind of deep philosophical conversations, uh, definitely more of a expressionistic horror uh, bend to the film uh, toward the end in particular. So it, it's really trying to balance a lot of different themes and tones. I, I think at times those tonal shifts are a little bit jarring and maybe not as well integrated as they could have been. Uh, the script, I think, also has a, a few uh, problems in terms of how certain things are set up and executed. Uh, we can get into that more later, I guess. But overall, very enjoyable. I, I'm always impressed by Bergman's ambition when it comes to his his pictures, especially just in the realm of taking on really heady philosophical themes. You know, and and 
he's always able to intertwine them in, in such a way that you don't anticipate. You know, you, you read the synopsis for this film and you kind of think you know what you're getting. And, and he always seems to be able to take it to the next level uh, thematically. So uh, this, this film is no exception. And uh, on that level in particular, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Bergman, I think, is a, a director that's quite interesting when you really delve into his filmography and recognize he's not quite as stereotypical as we might suspect. Uh, the constant image of him when I, I was growing up was this brooding Swede who was just fixated on death. And uh, <laughs> there's some truth to this, right? But sure. then you look at his films, you realize, well, no, they a lot, not all of them were that way. Some of them were. Some of the ones that became most famous were, but not all of his films. Yeah, And this is one where, like you said, when you see it, you think, oh, I know what this is going to be. And then very quickly you realize, mm, no, I don't. Uh, and I think it's worth really reflecting on it in terms of its comedic elements, which I should be honest, I when I first saw the film, I didn't pick up on as much as I did this time. Mm-hmm. I think I was more caught up in the metaphysical element of it and, you know, really the question, okay... Is this troop? I mean, we're being told pretty quickly that nah, it's all just an act. And certainly a lot of Bergman's films have been kind of about pulling back the uh, the concept that there might be spiritual realities uh, when there maybe isn't. But then you know he always has sort of a, a an openness to it in a way too. So I was like, well, maybe maybe he's going to be exploring whether or not they unwittingly are part of some spiritual reality that even though they're frauds or actors or however you want to describe them. I think that's worth examining and, and considering here. Uh, but really, I mean, it's really quite funny. And I was I was really thrown off by just the amount of sex humor that's in this particular film uh, with uh, some of the supporting characters. I was going to bring that up. Like, ho- holy smokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, 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 like, it's like, wow, this is downright body, I think, would be a way of looking at it, right? Very much so. Uh, and yeah. never to the point that it gets, I think, overwhelmed by that, uh, to, that it loses some of its thematic thrust. It sounds like you are maybe weren't as uh, sold on its tonal shifts as I am. I think it really balances and moves through them fairly well. Um, I'll admit the ending on a second viewing, this is my second time watching it, is not quite as effective as it was for me on the first time. Maybe that's always the way it is with these kinds of, because it's it's kind of a, a an ending that's looking at shocks and tricks and when it, I knew kind of what everything would be, it it just didn't seem to land as excitingly as it did the first time uh, for me. But nonetheless, uh, I still really enjoy the the way in which this film is is able to integrate deep themes, fairly significant themes, and entertainment. In less than two hours. I mean, it's a fairly short film. It's only about an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, and so it's really quite impressive to me just how much he's able to accomplish. Like you said, he's a very ambitious director. Not maybe in the sense that he's making massive, high-budget productions, but ambitious in terms of really being willing to go for it with the subject that is at hand. Yeah, he's always very uh, skilled at using... A limited number of locations too that's one thing that always stands out and that could be budgetary limitations of course but uh he he seems to kind of like the challenge of being confined to a set and uh with maybe a couple location shots or something like that he seems to kind of embrace um sort of those limitations that that can come from uh being trapped on a sound stage and uh, that's demonstrated pretty well here, right? And, and it's shot very well. It's a, there's definitely a, kind of a gothic, almost noir aesthetic to the film in terms of the way it's shot and lit and and definitely some punctuated kind of horror elements uh, in the film. But yeah, the, the tonal shifts are, I, I found, a bit jarring at times. and And the film is like we were saying, very ambitious about uh, its themes and almost feels like it's maybe taking on too much from time to time. I mean, so it really, really starts with our main characters kind of back on their heels, right? They're, they're taken by the police. They're immediately questioned. And, and Max von Sydow's character seems very depressed and very, 
just resigned to his situation. I mean, he he just you get the sense that maybe he's faced situations like this before and and people questioning him and you know maybe people not understanding that you know this is an actor, he's a magician or uh people questioning, you know, whether or not he's trying to come across like a legitimate healer or or a doctor of some kind. So there's always this sort of question of you know, what is the nature of this act? What is the nature of this performance? You know, are, are these, is this troupe going around really openly deceiving people, trying to make them believe that they have special powers, or are they being transparent about the fact that this is an act or a performance? And it's not entirely clear. I mean, I, the implication is that they certainly use maybe that mystery to promote themselves, right, either in, in the newspaper or or by word of mouth, and and maybe that that question of whether or not you know this troupe has special powers brings more people in to, to see the show, and and hopefully you know makes them more money. So you get the sense they're sort of riding this line, right? And and even his wife, uh, played by Ingrid Thulin, sort of has that moment where she she admits that, you know, it's all a sham and it's all, it's all a lie. And she seems kind of tired of it as well. So you get the sense that this group has had a big, has had an extensive history and there's this fatigue, this kind of set in, uh, right as the film opens. So it's pretty, pretty interesting place to start with these characters. And we never really get a full performance shown to us till, really toward the end of the film. And even that is, is a very small portion of the film. So that's one thing that struck me is we never are terribly confident in the abilities of this group uh, in terms of their quality of, you know, or their quality as performers or their quality as healers or whatever they may claim to be. So there's a lot of unanswered questions that are really thrown at us right away. And even before that questioning, there's there's sort of that, haunted sequence in the woods where they come across this dying um, actor who's presumably an alcoholic and and he seems to pass away in the carriage on the way to, to town and then he shows up again later. So there, there's a lot of really unpredictable sort of surprising elements that come up throughout the film which I appreciated and and Things are set up and they pay off later on in the film, but I, I would agree with you. The ending didn't quite work for me, uh, but we can get to that later as we as we talk. Well, let's actually jump in there on the the this actor character, the Spagel, uh, which in uh, Swedish means mirror. Yeah. And of course, when we meet him in Vogler, they meet in the woods, as you say. There's a sort of a, a cry that draws the troop out to go explore to see what's going on. Uh, and we meet this figure who is dressed very similarly to Vogler, right? When they, they both have a top hat, for example, they both have a beard. But with uh, Max von Sydow, what we're seeing is that he is obviously dressed up. I mean, it's a very fake-looking beard. I mean, just watching the film, you can tell, okay, this guy's wearing makeup. He's he's just, He's got this sort of um, craft that he's creating, like a... Of a almost a, a mystic, you know, he has a, maybe the way, if you think of the animated Raj al Ghul, he has a little bit of a, a parallel look to that uh, character in the Batman animated series. Um, you know, so you, you can see how uh, right away there's this interesting play with just the idea of performance. And I think that's a big part of this film is evaluating the relationship of a performer with an artist. Now, the film is obviously on one level, I think, just Bergman himself responding to or or trying to work through his own thoughts about his audience, whether that's film critics, whether that's the, the fawning, adoring fan, or whether that's going to be just a general uh, audience all around. Uh, because you have different kinds of responses to this crowd uh, in different ways uh, throughout the film. Uh, and I think he might be wanting to sort of explore what's our relationship to people who are performing to us, uh, whether that's a magician or whether that's uh, a doctor who is maybe selling us a certain kind of confidence in medicine. 
or whether that's going to be uh, our relationship with clergy or with politicians. I think all these areas can be brought to the examination of the proceedings that we have here. Uh, but what we find, I think, in this film, one of the key elements of it is the fact that the characters that are performing have an audience that is interested in the performance to one degree or another. Everybody in some way wants to see them perform, right? Uh, we have a couple of different motivations for why they might want that, right? So when we we look at the uh, the higher ups, the the leadership of this little village, right? You have two different kinds of responses to them, right? You have uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand's uh, Doctor Vergerus, who is the Minister of Health, uh, that really has the sense I have no room for you, and it's actually a, a need of his to prove that they are frauds, right? So he wants to see them so they can fail. And he can prove and vindicate himself and his worldview yeah. so that there is no inexplicableness to life, right? Everything can be solved logically, reasonably. You have the police inspector, uh, Starbuck, uh, who has his own motivation to sort of see them fail, right? He's, he's questioning the ethics of their promotion, and he wants them to be criminals. He wants them to be frauds, which would, of course, in a certain sense— vindicate his existence as a police officer, somebody to enforce uh, a law. Then you have this consul, Eggerman, and his wife, who kind of seem to be open to the possibility that this newfound pseudoscience of magnetism uh, is real. And uh, they have their own reasons for that, uh, particularly because uh, the, they have lost a daughter within the last year, and they're hoping that perhaps this Vogler is real and can communicate with the daughter. So it's interesting that all of them are interested in the performance for different reasons and with different desires of what they want it to mean for them. Even when you get down to the the help, I guess you'd say, uh, they all seem to have different ideas. The, the love potion element uh, was, I thought, a rather funny and amusing scene, right? When you have this complete total scam, right, yeah. of selling love potion, uh, but at the same time, everybody kind of wants it because everybody wants to go and make love, you know. <laughs> uh, so they all go drink it, and uh, the, well, even the one the one cook, uh, Sophia, uh, and the I don't know exactly what he maybe like the MC I guess you'd say uh, you know the, for the troop. Sure. Uh, you know they they have this uh, ex, uh, amorous relationship. She buys the love potion, but doesn't even bother taking it because she knows it's fake. But she's just playing a game, right? So, I mean, it's it's just, I think, very interesting how that can correspond a lot to what people are doing when they go to movies, right? Or when they go to art in general or any number of different things, right? People have a fascination with performers and they want something from the performer, but not always for the same reasons, right? And I think that Bergman here is really trying to explore that. I mean, I especially liked the scene with Vogler and with the uh, the Countess, I guess we could say. Uh, when she's saying how we're kindred spirits and I love you, and she's completely giving herself to this guy in the most superficial and idiotic way. Yeah. And here he's thinking, I'm a fraud. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know if I believe myself. He's frustrated with her, almost because it's like, you don't even appreciate what I am, and you have such a superficial view of me, right? And the, and the way he acts that out without any dialogue, like you say, because he's playing the part of a mute, uh, so he barely ever actually speaks. And I should say not playing the part of the mute as in the character's mute, but the character of Vogler is pr playing the part pretending to be mute. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's it's interesting to me how this film is exploring our relationship with performance. And that to me is what makes it endlessly fascinating to watch. It's true. I, it, it's very well considered in that regard, right? I mean, every character in the film has that kind of different perspective on what's what's going on and and the the film is very much about class structure as well right so we kind of see the servants all the way up to you know this accomplished uh physician who's clearly well respected and and wants to further solidify his intellectual prowess by you know breaking down this this troop of of uh, performers, but the film even I, I think even asks the audience, uh, you know, what they think is real or manufactured, right? I mean, the, Very the much whole so. yeah, the whole idea of 
of cinema is kind of that question uh, in and of itself, right? I mean, it's cinema is an illusion, and and every film you see kind of asks you that same question to some degree or another. But as the film progresses, you know, we start to see more demonstrations or more examples of their act or their performance. And, and there are some pretty striking events that take place that really make us question, you know, is this a performance, you know, and do these people really have some kind of hypnotic powers? You know, we see that, that situation with uh, the police inspector's wife, uh, Henrietta, and she seems to be under a spell of some kind and she spills all the, all these secrets about her husband. And then five seconds later forgets that she even said them. And after that, kind of the most shocking event, uh, is when the, uh, Antonson, the stableman is also asked to participate and he reluctantly agrees. And, and he, it almost seems that he kills, uh, Vogler, right? And as a result, he runs out in a panic. And uh, before this occurred, he seemed to be bound by invisible chains. And and these events are just kind of brushed off by the other attendees and observers, right? And and they all seem to kind of still think it's an act, or uh, they don't quite want to believe that something legitimate occurred. So the, I, I think these events are directed more at the audience than even at the other characters. Uh, so I was kind of curious on, on your take during that portion of the film because it really starts to blur that line between um, mysticism and, and performance, right? I'd agree. I, I think the, the, the whole of Bergman's work, right, and he's both writer-director here, mm-hmm. is very much interested in trying to perceive reality and how do you make sense of reality and to recognize that reality is much more complicated than we might initially think, you know? And so both the, the naive kind of belief in this animal magnetism, right. um, Is kind of, I think for Bergman, a little too simplistic, but so is the hyper rationalist view, right. Yeah. That somehow there's a mixture of them, right. That makes sense of what we're actually seeing here. Uh, because there is something that's going on with these demonstrations. Obviously, we can see like the the levitating one is revealed to be a fraud. There's a guy behind the curtain who's holding the strings, and then you know they come back and they reveal, and everyone's like ha 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 ha. And that kind of gives the the permission of the audience to say, well, everything I'm looking at's not real. It's all just yeah. a joke. And you could look at the the hypnotism or the um, the, the the invisible chains for Antonson. As if it's just power of suggestion, right? That it's not anything actually metaphysical that's taking place there. It's purely psychological or it's it's all rational in some capacity, right? Whereas as an audience watching it, you start to go, well, is it rational? I mean, you know, I, can I perfectly explain everything that I'm seeing here uh, in that way? And then the to your point about the, the sort of the audience of the film reflecting upon this, uh, at what point do I have to say, like, well, of course, none of this is real. It's all a demonstration of an actor, a director, or a cinematographer, an editor, right? I mean, none of this is actually historical characters. I'm watching all fiction, and yet I'm being impacted by it. I'm feeling things about it. So then is there something real that comes as a count of that? Because it is having an impact on me. Yeah, exactly. uh, Can something that's not real have an impact on what is real, right? So I think that the film really does invite that kind of deeper consideration. And I think the ending still, even though watching it a second time is not as effective as it was the first time, I still think it actually thematically works with that, right? Um, you know, I, I, I you know, think if you saw it in 1958, it probably does come across a little bit more horrific than it does now. Uh, but still, I think even with you know, not being as effective or as kind of uh, hallucinatory as it was for me the first time, I think it nonetheless is able to convey all those same things and about ultimately this character, Vergerus, uh himself becoming frightened, right? And then trying to explain away and sort of rationalize his frightenedness versus accepting, 
maybe it wasn't rational for me to be frightened right now uh, in this moment, right? And so I think, I, I don't know, I found it very interesting. And of course, that's not really the end of the film. There's still some stuff that takes place afterwards uh, that is maybe worth talking about as well. But I think this, the way he, he, the doctor tries to walk away from all of this uh, as if, nope, you didn't really win. Even though what we saw certainly indicates that Volger or Vogler does beat him, right in that moment at least. Uh, so I don't know. It's, it's a fascinating film because it, it's not clear to me who wins that wager that that uh, is set out at the start of the film. Uh, Vogler's con- or excuse me, uh, Vergerus is convinced he wins it. Eggerman even thinks thinks it because he hasn't seen the whole story. Uh, but maybe maybe Vogler has shown. Nope, I actually do have some kind of power you can't explain. Yeah, I, I can see thematically what Bergman is going for with that ending or, or with that kind of more horror-inspired sequence with Dr. Vergerus uh, seeing kind of this, re- what he perceives as a resurrected Vogler, right? And, and the way that sequence is shot is is pretty interesting. It's very expressionistic and, and quite um, uh, horror-inspired, I think. Uh, but there's there's some issues there, I guess. Just as a plot mechanics nitpick, this idea that you could have you know two bodies in this casket, and they happen to pick up Johann's body and perform the autopsy on him, and they would at no point uh, you know not realize that they're doing an autopsy on the wrong body seems like a big stretch to me, unless, unless I just missed something there. <laughs> um, so that kind of took me out of it. Cause I, I kept kind of thinking to myself, how did this autopsy occur? How did they not realize that they weren't performing it on the right person? And uh, see, so you, you kind of have to brush that aside a little bit uh, for the sake of, of what Bergman's going for thematically. And yeah, he, he, even after that confrontation, uh, the doctor brushes it off, right? He's like, well, you know, yeah, you, you got me. I was kind of scared for a minute, and, and that's it. And you don't get the sense that there there's much of an arc for him, I guess, or much of a meaningful realization that comes from that experience, which I, I found a little bit disappointing. I mean, not to say that he needs to completely alter his worldview, but um, something that would have been a, a little more lasting i guess on his character would have been interesting to see manifest in some way um but it, you know you you said you felt like the tonal shifts worked pretty well and it i would say on the whole um they're not bad but uh there's it, it I just feel like the film is kind of overly ambitious in many ways. And, and it's hard to level that as, you know, too harsh of a criticism because so many films today have no ambitions. Uh, so I, I do appreciate that Bergman is, is trying to pack all this in. Uh, but at least as a first time viewing, uh, the film did feel uh, quite fragmented to me just in terms of uh, its tone and, and what it was trying to say at any given moment. And it, it just struck me as something that, that would lend itself to repeat viewings because it is trying to do so much at once. Well, I didn't really think that it seemed like it tried to do too much. I think that it's definitely going to be much more demanding than a typical movie today, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which pretty much tells you what to think all the time. I yeah. mean, that's, that's actually one of the things I love about this kind of film and Bergman as a director is that he doesn't really ever tell us much of what we should think. And his films do invite us to actually then try to talk about what's in them afterwards, right? Uh, it's not just here, but it, it just over and over again. I mean, his films have that kind of impact where you try to r- make sense of a character, make sense of the the questions that are being raised. And I think that this film is no exception uh, to that quality of his work. I would say I think that, you know, Vergeris not having a character arc it's an interesting question because I, one of I think you could interpret this in a way that sees that there is a bit of an arc that he himself just then works to deny because it's important for him 
that he was right all along. And so yeah. he's could be said to be lying at the end and putting on an act himself, much like Vogler puts on an act through much of the film, right? That he now becomes a, oh, you're just a, a no good actor. Here's the the little coin for you uh, as I'm trying to dis- diminish and dismiss you and re- sort of regain my, my sense of superiority that I had lost for a moment, right? I, I need to hide that I didn't have the upper hand and my worldview might not be even something I'm perfectly committed to. Uh, because for a while there, he was clearly not himself convinced of his worldview uh, in that in that addict. Uh, so I I do wonder if there is a sense that he is deliberately hiding anything that might have changed in him uh, in terms of trying to interpret and understand that character. Uh, the other element is I think that that's not particularly unrealistic. I actually thought his response was very believable. In that sense, it was very satisfying to me because I can't see a guy who is made his career, made his reputation about, I'm going to prove that this is all fake, all of a sudden become like, well, now I'm not so sure. He's going to want to keep verifying his existence and his identity. And so just like the police superintendent sort of seems to dismiss whatever he saw. He is obviously disturbed by his wife spilling all these things. Um, And it's clear that based on his reaction, what she's saying is true. Not that she's saying something false. Uh, it seems to me that you know he also has this motivation to sort of dismiss them as a way of trying to protect his himself. And I think that's a fascinating response because we see that probably a lot in life, and we all probably do that ourselves at some point, uh, where we we might deny certain things that are occurring within us or certain doubts that might be emerging, in order for us to sort of get away from. Uh, having to deal with the consequences of that change or having to admit to a possible error or misunderstanding or a limitation of ourselves. Uh, So that much I like. Um, I guess what I saw in terms of the, the ending of the film that is so interesting is that it really does make a certain sense. Vogler uh, becomes more sure of himself as as he goes through the film uh, because he becomes more honest with who he is, right? I mean, at the ending, or at the beginning, rather, he's he's really kind of in doubt. You know, he doesn't say anything. We have tons of time before we ever hear him speak. And so we don't really know what's going on with him and what he's about. And we are trying to make sense of, I guess, through mostly like hand gestures in Von Sydow's performance, uh, we're trying to understand him that particular way. Um, and by the end of it, though, he's very honest and forthright about who he is. And a sort of vindication comes, right? <laughs> Ironically enough, you know, we think of Bergman as always despairing and bleak. But this film ends with a kind of an exuberant vindication of them. They're going to go to the king of Sweden and perform for him, right? Uh, which kind of <laughs> just a striking change of tone, right? From what you might have thought based on everything you saw. So I just feel like Vogler's... Vogler's arc is a more interesting arc in this film than might initially catch a viewer's eye. Yeah, I think he's the primary focus. I I, I thought that <laughs> that happy ending felt very forced to me. Like <laughs> it it almost felt a bit too fairy taleish. But I, I I can see why Bergman was was trying to um, end it on a more positive note after everything that had come before. Uh, By the way, the date that the that they're ca- called to go and appear before the king because it gives the date uh, is actually Ingmar Bergman's birthday. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that that ending uh, it, it kind of made me laugh a little bit, to be honest. But fair enough, it's fine. I, well, isn't it supposed to though? I mean, I I don't think it wasn't supposed to. I think it's supposed to make you laugh. Yeah, I guess so. But. Inter- not not necessarily in the way that was the, intended. <laughs> when you're talking about the ending, you're talking about the the announcement from the police. That, yeah, to to perform at the royal palace. Yeah. Oh, I, I always thought I thought you were supposed to laugh at that point. Yeah, but I. It, it was more well, maybe you are, but I, it just it felt like an absurd plot point to me. I guess that that would occur, uh, especially you know 
five minutes prior. But they set it up earlier, right? Because they set up earlier about when they had been at us. Oh, gosh, where was it that they talked about uh, when when Vogler and his wife are discussing when Manda is talking about their their history mm-hmm. and how they had performed and had the, all these experiences. They talk about that uh, a good word would be put to the royal court for them in Sweden. So it was set up earlier. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but it, it just still felt like a stretch to me that, you know, five minutes prior, Vogler's like stumbling downstairs and in, in rags begging for money. And, and their circumstances imply that they're not, in a, you know, an incredibly successful troop or act or however you want to characterize them. So the, the idea that they all of a sudden be, uh, invited to the Royal Palace to perform seemed like a bit of a stretch, but uh, that it's kind of nitpicking. I, I, I understand why it's there and, and that's fine, but it, it just, it, it was one of those tonal shifts again that I felt was a bit jarring. Well, fair enough. I mean, I still think that, that it works nonetheless because not only did they actually set up that, but also, I mean, how often is that the case with an artist, right? That yeah. you're struggling and then you get your big break. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, from it's that, entirely from that lens possible. Of looking at the film. Well, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about uh, Manda Vogler, uh, Albert Vogler's wife, and her character I, I thought was pretty interesting because uh, I, I had mentioned before that she seems quite resigned uh, to the fact that they're frauds, at least on some level, right? And she seems to be really wrestling with defining who they are as people and who they are as artists and performers. And, and they, she seems quite fatigued. And you mentioned that, that scene between um, him and Albert, or excuse me, her and Albert uh, in bed at, at one point having a discussion. That's when we really see Albert for the first time without his makeup on. Right. And, you get the sense they they really have a deep connection and they have a pretty turbulent history. And her strength, I think, comes through very, very well. And she seems to be really sort of the rock of the the performing troupe, I felt. And she kind of has this inner stillness and strength that really permeates throughout the film. Um... So, and that's a testament to Ingrid Thulin's performance, who I always think is excellent every time I see her in something. Well, yeah, she's a great uh, performer, and I think that's one of the the qualities of Bergman is that he has assembled a crew and cast that he can work with time and again to flesh out some of those those layers there, right? This is a part that could easily have been small and insignificant and uh, i think for manda you know you could easily have had her plate as just simply put upon Ugh, i got this artist husband yeah that i'm trying to deal with here or you could have been she was almost uh the the master manipulator you could have any number of different directions of how you wanted to play this part but she she really takes the right tact which is Life is hard. I mean, honestly, I think that's what I see with her. It's like, life is hard, and we we have a hard time. We had a moment where it would seem like there was something good, but we chose a different route, and now we're dealing with it, right? And, you know, really kind of being almost at wit's end because of circumstances of life, not necessarily out of any sort of, you know, um, oh, gosh, what's the ethics of what we're doing here? You know, I, I don't know if it's right for us to be pretending that uh, that this act is real. Uh, it's more just a, this has been a long haul. And I think that's an interesting perspective to bring to it. And I imagine that's not untrue for many people who in life are going through uh, difficult periods, right? I mean, whether you're an artist or you're a physician or you're a lawyer, you might at a certain point in time question, like, what is this thing I'm doing? And is it really making a difference? And how often am I bluffing myself as I'm trying to just project a certain confidence uh, I think she captures all those features well. And, you know, the whole cast, I think, is particularly strong. Uh, but I, her performance is, you're right, a standout. Uh, maybe we could talk about Von Sydow here a little bit. Because, yeah. as you said, 
he doesn't have a lot of dialogue, even after we you know see him speak and we see him out of his out of his actual uh, costume. Uh, he still doesn't talk very often, right? Uh, even after that, um, I think he's really good here, but I'm not a hundred percent certain what it is that he's doing that makes me so drawn to his performance. I'm wondering if it's like it's a fact that he's almost doing like two layers of a performance because he plays the character of Vogler who himself is playing this magnetist, right? So it's like, there's like two layers. He's playing a character who himself is playing a character. And so the, the mystery of trying to figure out this person uh, is all kind of on his shoulders as an actor here. I think he handles it well, but I'm not quite certain what he's doing that makes me so interested in it. I'm curious if you have thoughts on his performance. I would agree. It's it's quite layered. I mean, you really have to you have to balance those elements, right? Because you know, as as a, an actor or as a character, that eventually the costume is going to come off, and he's going to be really this sort of tortured artist in some ways. And I think he lets that come through his performance when he is in costume, right? I mean. Like I had mentioned before, the early interrogation scenes, there's a real sense of pain, right, to his face and just to his presence. And and that's almost interpreted as um, arrogance or, um, you know, mysticism, however you want to characterize it, by, by his interrogators. Where, whereas we eventually learn that his attitude is really kind of born from this fatigue, right? So it is kind of a Rorschach test in some ways. I mean, I I do think that um, he has enough expressiveness, you know, in his his eyes, just in his expression, in the way he carries himself and his posture as he's sitting. He always seems kind of slouched, and, and the camera seems to favor you know, kind of higher angled views to diminish him a bit and make him seem more victimized in some ways. Uh, so there's definitely choices made in terms of how the film is shot that kind of enhance uh, those elements of his performance. There's some really striking kind of extreme close-ups too, right, and a, a couple points in the film that are seemingly intended to magnify this idea of his his powers or his mysticism or this magnetism that he he claims to have mastered and so yeah there's a lot going on there I mean I I, I think his performance overall though is is favored toward the underlying persona the the real man that that lives kind of beneath uh, or underneath the uh, the persona of the, the magician or underneath the costume. And that's probably the right way to play it. For sure. I mean, it's it's if we only got to know the fiction, right, of the character, that it would also, I think, rob the film of a lot of its import, right? Yeah. Uh, the fact that we can see him kind of break down at certain points, particularly on a repeat viewing, I think it makes the the layers of what he's doing more interesting, right? I mean, at first, you know, he is more mystique you know there's a mystique around him and so you can't really quite tell what he's trying to do or what kind of you know are, are these criminal charges true are they not true right that they're they're trying to escape from uh you know it, it's just a fascinating way in which they kind of develop his character uh, i also want to just give credit also to the uh supporting cast particularly uh the coach driver simpson uh the by lars ekborg uh really funny yeah, uh, just a really good, funny, comedic performance there. Particularly love the scene uh, where he's having the love potion and having that the tryst uh, in the stalls there. It's just really quite, quite funny how he's so inept, uh, but she is so taken with him. Uh, and again, it gets that question of like, what's the attraction and why, right? Uh, because. You know, th- there's obviously something she's drawn towards uh, here uh, with this crew that's come into their into their residence, uh, but also 
is drawn to the possibilities, I think, of what they might mean. And of course, we should note that the, this character of of Sarah uh, is willing to go with them at the end of the film when others of the troop have said, I don't want to continue anymore, right? The old granny wants to, to stay and just be done. Yeah, she runs uh, and off. And so forth. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, she just runs off. She's she's evidently, by selling these aphrodisiacs, has been collecting <laughs> thousands of dollars, <laughs> which I, is, again, another kind of uh, humorous beat uh, that I think works well yeah. uh, to it. But. Well, Matt, maybe we could just talk a little bit about the filmmaking because you hit on just the, some of the expressionism of it. The cinematographer here is Gunnar Fischer, uh, and I think he does a nice job of balancing the the different tones. Uh, so if you think about those early interrogation scenes, you know, the, the camera's you know, not as anywhere near as expressionistic. The lighting's a lot more tame and typical. Uh, but then in certain key moments, right, it does flare up, right? It mm-hmm. becomes much more, you know, interesting how it's staged, the way the the use of mirrors, the reflections uh, work in things. I, I find that the cinematography uh, is very well integrated here. I mean, Bergman is a director. He has obviously a lot of stage background, and so you can see why he's good with actors. You can see how he's good at directing a scene because of that. But he also is, I think... Uh, has a great sense of cinematic language and his films, I think never, never called too much attention to the filmmaking, but the filmmaking, when you start looking at it always is quite good and really quite thoughtful. Um, so I, you know, I, like you just said, even the use of close-ups, how that helps to draw in a sense of the mystique of this main character here. Uh, all those little things are really, I think quite well observed. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I think it was very well staged, uh, well, um, well edited. I mean, Bergman's craft is all, is generally excellent. I mean, I I'm always impressed with how how he stages scenes and, and blocking and just his his mastery of, of the cinematic language is is very clear. So uh, definitely no exception here. Well, maybe we could turn our attention here, Matt, to the Criterion release. As I mentioned at the start, this was released back in 2010 as its own title, standalone. Uh, I picked up that Blu-ray before the major Bergman box set came out. Um, it's, a, I think, a good release. Uh, you know, There's some nice features that are on the disc. So there's a 1967 video interview with Bergman that was shot for uh, Swedish TV as well as uh, an audio interview, a rare English audio interview with Bergman and uh, the filmmaker Olivia Sayas, uh, which I think was done in 1990, uh, as well as uh, a video essay by Peter Cowie, who uh, is one of the leading experts on Bergman. So all of those are very interesting to listen to and to observe. Uh, it's just in terms of getting a little extra thoughts about the particular film. Uh but the big thing I wanted to talk about was just that Bergman box set, which has nearly every film Bergman ever made. I think there might be one that they didn't have the rights to or something like that. But it's pretty much every film he's he made in his entire career. It's a huge box set. I think it's the best thing Criterion's ever done. Um, it's just magnificently laid out. The, the design of it is beautiful. The... Uh, the uh, the way in which they kind of structured the discs, not just in a chronological order, but in this order of as if you're doing a Bergman film festival where they have like, here's the films to watch in this night and here's the films to watch at this time, you know, and how to pair them together. I, it's just a, a, a wonderful release. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that release uh, that you wanted to share, so especially after we, we kind of beat up on the Wong Kar Wai set yeah. uh, last, <laughs> uh, last episode. Yeah, it, it's a fantastic release. I mean, I, I would have a hard time arguing with anyone, you know, that says that's the best thing Criterion's done. And and my only disappointment about it um, is the fact that the Bergman set is so good that I thought it was an indication of what was to come in the future for other directors. <laughs> and it hasn't quite happened. I mean, they did the Fellini set, I guess, but... Yeah, there's just something... Which is also quite good. Yeah, there's just something about that Bergman set, though, that 
the comprehensive nature of it, just how well it's it's thought through in terms of uh, sort of a curation or, or kind of a, a programming order, as you had stated, versus just presenting the films chronologically and 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 the book that's included and yeah, it's it's fantastic and and quite a good value too. Uh, all things considered, especially if you get it during one of their 50% off sales. Well, I remember when it came out, it sold out. It was it was out of print for a little while there just because every single copy of it was sold, right? Yeah, it was tough to find for a few months. Yeah, they, they did do some new printings of it. So it must have been a success for them. Uh, I'll go, I don't know how much it cost to really make this and how much it took to put it all together. So maybe it wasn't as lucrative as they had hoped. And maybe that's why some of their other releases haven't been quite as as uh, elaborate or as carefully thought through. Um, I think the big thing that we're hoping for is that we might get something like this for a Kurosawa, for example. But Yeah, that's that's the whole that's the holy grail, that one. Yeah. Oh, that'd be fantastic for sure. Um, but no, I think this is like you say, it's it is a real great release. Uh, I can't couldn't ask for anything better. As a Bergman fan, I couldn't ask for anything more ever. Yeah, it's it's something I never. Uh, I don't plan to part with that set. That's for sure. Well, on the final question of the night, then Matt, does the magician belong in the Criterion Collection? I, I think it's a very good film. Uh, I'm going to have to say no. However, I I enjoyed it. I think it's strong. I think you know the fact that we have basically every Bergman film in the Criterion Collection, virtually. <laughs> uh, this this question seems particularly futile, uh, given that, but still nothing worth seeing for people that are interested in Bergman, uh, but not, not on the short list for inclusion in my mind. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's not on its own, I think, a film that belongs in the collection, I do think if you're going to do a collection for a director where you say, hey, we want to get everything this guy did into the Criterion Collection and do a box set like they did, then Bergman is the one of the guys you do that for. Yeah. Right? And so in that sense, as a part of the box set, you include it and you say, yes, let's do this box set. So I think the box set is definitely a worthy thing that belongs in the collection. And by extension, this belongs in the set. But as an individual standalone film... No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't pick it to be in there either. Even though I do think it's very good, might be getting a little bit too much praise from critics uh, and film buffs today. Uh, as a, as kind of one of those fun discoveries when you you have a great director, you feel like you've seen everything that's great of theirs, and you find something else uh, that hasn't been as talked about. I can so I can see why it has that real big fanfare, but I don't think it's a great film. I think it's an extremely good film uh, that. You know, glad to have seen, glad to have it in the collection as part of that box set. But on its own, no. And thank you all for listening to us as we discuss The Magician this month. Please join us next month when we will be discussing This is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection. Thank you, and keep collecting.